Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. Today's podcast is the second half of my conversation with Milton Friedman. A half century ago, in 1956, Milton Friedman gave a series of lectures that eventually became the book Capitalism and Freedom, published by the University of Chicago Press in 1962. In this podcast, we talk about the ideas in that book and what the future might hold for capitalism and for freedom. Milton, let's turn to uh, capitalism and freedom. In the book, you lay out the principles of what you call liberalism. Uh, Sometimes you call it liberalism, 19th century liberalism. Sometimes you've called it classic classical liberalism, and you advocate there a limited role for government in the legal and monetary system and maximal freedom and responsibility for the individual. And in particular, you you argued for, in that book, uh, which was published in 1962, but based on lectures, I think, that you gave in the late 1950s. 1956. So the ideas uh, in that book are at least 50 years old this year, uh, in 2006. And in 1956... And then thereafter, and in the book in 1962, you argued for a volunteer army, flexible exchange rates, a monetary rule for stable prices, educational vouchers, privatizing Social Security, and a negative income tax. And at the time, those ideas were not conservative at all, of course, but rather radical. Some people might call them conservative, but at the time... You called them liberal because they were about freedom, uh, but they were considered conservative. I mean, excuse me, they were considered either conservative or, or wacky. Uh, what was the reaction to the book when it came out? I don't know. I really don't know how to answer that question because uh, when it came out, it did not receive a great deal of attention to begin with. It it was. Reviewed in no major in no major newspaper. The New York Times didn't review it. It was it, the only reviews it got was in professional magazines. It was reviewed in the Amer- in the American Economic Review, in the in the Economic Journal, and other major professional. But it got uh, it got very little public attention. I'm surprised it was actually reviewed there. Uh, a book like that today would be much less likely to be reviewed in the American Economic Review or Economic Journal. It was a, a polemic of sorts. It, it was a little a strong. Uh, it, was a, it was a treatise. It was a, a manifesto. But by that time, I had acquired a considerable reputation as an economist. And the professional economics, there was, there was a good deal in this book, however, which was a professional economics Importance, what you've mentioned, floating exchange rates. I was going to say the exchange rate stuff. That was certain. And the monetary Monetary stuff stuff was certain. And so that, and it was a, it it was polemic, but it wasn't primarily polemic. And it's not written in a polemical style. No, it's written, it's a, it tries to be a rational argument. And it tries to consider the evidence for the points that are made. But you're stressing how much has since been achieved from it. Correct. But I've always stressed the opposite. If you look at the list 
in chapter one or two. <laughs> yes. I have a long list of things government ought not to be doing. It just and it's and it's not exhaustive. You say at the end of it, this is just uh, the beginnings of a list. The only one of those that has really been achieved is a volunteer army. Right. We've made some inroads potentially on agricultural price supports, which is I think the first thing you list on that on that page. Uh, there, there was actually somewhat serious talk about changing them, but you're right. There are many, many things that on that list. The, you could argue the glass is half empty, uh, but as a, again, someone who came of intellectual age in the 70s and who was uh, sympathetic to the ideas in the book, uh, to put it mildly, uh, advocating those ideas at the time, any of the ones we've talked about uh, on the positive side that actually happened or are close to happening was a recipe for being treated as a buffoon or a fool or, or a heartless person. And to me, it's an extraordinary uh, intellectual and policy experiment over the last 50 years that so many of those things have come to pass. Uh, and the attitude, what's happened is that the public attitude has changed tremendously. In 1945, 1950, at the end of the war, Intellectual opinion was almost wholly collectivist. Everybody was a socialist. They may not have used the term, but that's what they were. However, practice was not socialist. Practice was free enterprise. The role of government at that time was much smaller right. than it has since become. And from 1945 on to 1980, what you had was galloping socialism. Government took over more and more control. Government spending went from about 20% of national income, government, federal, state, and local, to about 40% of national income until Reagan came along. But Reagan was able to do what he did because in that 20-year period, intellectual opinion had changed. What had before been a hypothesis was now fact. You now could see what the government did. And people didn't particularly like what the government did. So public attitudes about government had changed very much over that period. And I think maybe capitalism and freedom added a little of that. But I think experience with what was going on was much more responsible. Although it was interesting, at the time, the, uh, the other side of the intellectual argument, the, the, the socialist or communist side, uh, was doing quite poorly, but we were not aware of it. Uh, the Soviet Union was was doing uh, much, much worse than it appeared to be doing. Sure. And so, if we had had the facts about the Soviet Union, the intellectual, ca the experiential case for capitalism and markets might have been even stronger. But it's it really is rather remarkable that, given the intellectual and uh, apologists, the intellectual apologists for the for the Soviet Union of the day how much the tide changed in public opinion despite the lack of direct evidence that we had. We had very little direct evidence outside the United States. And I think it was the evidence of the government in the United States that was playing a role. Yeah, we just needed more Department of Motor Vehicles uh, so that people could experience <laughs> government uh, uh, firsthand. Post office. Post office. FedEx. Yeah. Well, that was another example I didn't mention, uh, the privatization of the Postal Service. You also, of course, talked about we've made strides there in the delivery of so-called packages uh, and urgent mail. I don't know why uh, uh, politically why that happens, a fascinating story. Um, 
Because it's only business or wealthy people who would do that. What? It's only business or wealthy people who would need urgent mail. Yeah, right. Uh, I'm sure the early predictions of how widespread that would be uh, turned out to be greatly underestimated the demand for uh, FedEx and other services, private services, overnight mail. It's, a, of course, a wonderful thing. <clears throat> but I really have never done any serious work on trying to trace the course of general public opinion, except as it worked through the politics of it. Reagan could never have gotten elected if there had not been a big change in public opinion. He could not have been elected in 19... 19- 50. And Goldwater could, was not electable in, in 1964, 1964. Who, who in many ways was the most free market candidate uh, of, that, of the 20th century. Um, and yet uh, George W. Bush, who is, is not much of a, of a classical liberal, did at least talk about what he described as privatizing right, Social Security, right. a topic that uh, Reagan might think was a good idea, but I don't think ever talked about it uh, publicly, advocated it, never made it a campaign issue, I think probably afraid of it, perhaps correctly so. I remember in my youth, again going back to the 70s, uh, talking about eliminating Social Security was uh, an invitation to be described as a person who wanted to see old people die in the streets, quote, as they did before the 1930s, as if somehow Social Security had prevented this from happening which is bizarre given the level of social course. security in the 30s right. and all the private mechanisms we have for taking care of ourselves. And, um, so you obviously capitalism and freedom played a role. You mentioned earlier, uh, previously, the road to serfdom by Hayek and uh, in, in affecting public opinion. There was definitely an intellectual um, foundation laid for these public opinion changes that gave people something to hold on to. Well, we know that, for example, we happen to know that Reagan read Capitalism and Freedom before I ever met him. And uh, clearly, that's the way in which uh, a book has influence. But it also has influence through affecting the electorate who accept the... And, and Free to Choose, a book we haven't mentioned yet, uh, which was a, a documentary on public television at first, and then I think the book followed the documentary. Was it was the other way around. Uh, the, the book was based on the documentary. Okay, so the, the but documentary... The, but, but appeared in print before oh, the documentary. Okay, it's a complicated story to get the history right. What but, happened was that we finished all the work on the documentary in spring of 79, and we spent the summer of 79... Uh, using the uh, the transcripts of the program uh, as a basis for Free to Choose book. And Harcourt Brace did a remarkable job of uh, publishing the book. Uh, we went to the printers in September, and it was in school- bookstores in December. Wow. Yeah, that's a record for the publishing That is business. a record. And it well, got a few reviews. Yovanovitch, at the time, it was Harcourt Brace Yovanovitch. Right. And Bill Yovanovitch was very much of a fellow thinker, uh-huh. and he contributed to our program. In what way? Oh, uh, very. Uh, to begin with, uh, the first step in creating the program was that I gave a series of lectures all over the country on the subjects that were going to be in the program. 
as to provide material for the uh, producer and directors uh, to, to weave into film. Mm-hmm. And he gave us a, a contract for publishing the uh, uh, transcripts of those lectures. So that helped uh, finance the trip. Helped finance the very beginning of it. When you said he contributed, I wasn't quite sure what, what the type of contribution No, it was a dollar contribution. Uh, very important, yeah. Um, so that book and, and the, the, the TV series, which reached millions, obviously helped as well, taking the ideas of capitalism and freedom, which probably didn't sell quite as well, uh, marketed by the University of Chicago Press, but uh, similar, almost... No, no, the, the University of Chicago Press did a good job in marketing, considering the number of, the, the absence of book reviews. After all, a, uh, Capitalism and Freedom has sold something like 600,000 copies. Uh, Free to Choose has sold over a million copies. Uh, and uh, we found it very fascinating to observe the way sales of, Free to Choo- of Capitalism and Freedom went. To begin with, they were very uh, relatively few and flat, and then they gradually started to increase, and it was entirely person-to-person. Yeah, word-of-mouth. Word-of-mouth stuff. And it is a book that uh, I, I went back and and read much of it in advance of this, this conversation. Uh, it still reads quite... It's still quite topical, oh, un- it unfortunately. <laughs> no, not unfortunately. The basic principles that we believe in are going to stay the same for the next thousand years. Yeah, they're timeless. And so that aspect of it should, will never go out of date. What goes out of date are the particular applications. Sure. One of the uh... we still find Adam Smith's book, Wealth of Nations, well worth reading, even though it's uh, published in 1776. Yeah, it's uh, it is surprisingly. Um... Informative. It certainly is, and it's so well written. Yeah, it's beautifully done. The breadth of discussion, examples, his uh, his knowledge, and as you say, his communication skills, which are often, I think, underestimated, are, are a huge part of the success of that book. To take a counterexample, David Ricardo, I don't know if he's as, he's definitely not as interesting a thinker as Smith, but he's certainly not as good a writer. And oh, he wasn't <laughs> in the same class. He's a horrible uh, writer, to be blunt about it. And um, I don't know whether that's the only reason so few of his ideas are still read, uh, or uh, whether it's uh, other factors. But um, Smith's skill as a um, stylist definitely helped, and they helped you as well. I mean, oh, you're—I yeah. think a huge part of your um, of your success, obviously not the logic, but the success of the ideas is uh, your ability to communicate clearly and effectively to a, a non-technical audience. Well, I don't, I'm, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a stylist the way Smith was. The modern economist who really, I think, matches that is George Sigurd. Absolutely, yeah. He had a graceful pen. Yeah. And it was a pen, probably, not a keyboard, if I had to guess. <laughs> oh, there's no doubt that it was a pen. <laughs> I know you can give us the, the empirical, the empirical uh, evidence. Uh, let me ask you about another idea from Capitalism and Freedom. that uh, We talked earlier about the glass being half empty versus half full. Uh, 
There was an important idea in capitalism and freedom that you later elaborated in a Sunday New York Times magazine story in 1970, I think. Or was it 71? You're talking about social responsibility. Here's the quote. Um, There is one and only one social responsibility of business, to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. Uh, I feel that that view of business, the one that says it should maximize its profits, is increasingly under attack, and there's a strong uh, activism afoot in the land to turn corporations, businesses, and businesses into social organizations, welfare agencies, uh, charitable organizations. One, do you agree with me? Do you think that's true? And two, uh, what can we do about it? Any ideas? I, I think I think it's absolutely true. There's no doubt that that's happening. The... Uh the view that there are many stakeholders and not only the the shareholders right. uh, is spread. Every business, every and and business itself uh, propagates the idea because it's good public relations. Right, I think it's yeah. They spend money with, entirely with a view to the bottom line, but but label it correct social sp- responsibility spending and. Uh, that sentence, I think, is still just as true as it ever was, and I've never seen—I've never seen an occasion to change my view about that. What is it? Suppose a businessman, a business, wants to be do charity. What is it that gives him any special ability to do charity properly? The XYZ company. In addition to producing XYZ trucks, also wants to be a socially responsible, and so it goes. In, it says it does what it thinks is charity. What is its special capacity for that? It may know how to make trucks, but does it know what the right how, the right way to spend a charitable money? And and uh, uh, whose money is it spending? It's spending somebody else's money. It's a uh, it's a very bad practice, it seems to me, and it is. Business has had such a big incentive to label itself socially responsible that it's primarily responsible for that conception. Yeah, I worry about that slippery slope as they uh, brag about how how well they've done in those different dimensions. I, I, I'd like them to brag about how how profitable they are. Yeah. That means they produce something that. People enjoy, are willing to pay for, and have found a way to produce it at less than at uh, at a lower cost. The truth of the matter is that the only way anybody can make money is by producing by producing something that people want to buy. But it can give away money without meeting that restriction. Yes, it can, and, and that reminds me of, of one explanation for why. Uh, people, I think, lean on businesses to uh, to indulge other activities besides producing products well. And it's sort of the Willie Sutton theory of you know why you rob banks. It's because that's where the money is. You know, when people, when I look at an example like Walmart, where people complain that Walmart doesn't pay well enough, and in fact, recently the Chicago City Council, your old stomping grounds, always a, a wonderful economics laboratory. Uh, <laughs> but the Chicago City Council recently uh, passed an ordinance to make it vetoed, but 
it may be overridden if it is vetoed, passed an ordinance requiring large retailers, mainly Walmart and Target, to pay at least $10 an hour in wages and $3 an hour in benefits. I think if you ask the uh, proponents of that ordinance, the intellectual proponents, not the politicians, if you ask the intellectual proponents, why should Walmart uh, be the people who finance a higher standard of living for their workers? Why should the investors of Walmart, the stockholders, and Target be the ones that finance that? I think the answer would be, well, they have the money. That ignores, of course, the incentive effects that then result. To me, they're the last people you'd want to have finance this because it discourages them from creating jobs for low-skilled people. But I think that first-order effect of, well, they've got the money. They write, After all, they write the checks, so therefore they've got the responsibility. is a huge appeal to the average person, politically well, and, and intellectually. But it's always been true. True. That, that No, it's always been true that business is not a friend of a free market. Yeah. Uh, I have given a lecture from time to time under the title uh, The uh, uh, Suicidal uh, Impulses of the Business Community. Something like that. And it's true. Uh, it's, it's in the self-interest of the business community to get government on its side. It's in the self-interest of the business of a particular business uh, look at this crazy business uh, about ethanol. Who's benefiting from that? Farmers. Corn farmers. No, the farmers aren't benefiting. Or the landowners. What's his name? What's the company that produces it? Oh, uh, um, you know, Archer I'm, Daniels Midland. I think that's the right. You know, there's some excuse for my not having a bad, my good memory, but there's none for you. I apologize. But the beauty of that is that the long pause between your question and my answer will be uh, edited out of the tape in the, uh, in the published version. For all, for all our listeners know, I stopped the tape, went on the Internet, and had to Google it. But uh, you, you can reassure them I did get it, but it did take a long time. But, yeah, they're the beneficiaries. Yeah. And so, of course, they lobby and, and talk about the enormous environmental benefits of of uh, ethanol, um, people do find that very appealing, uh, partly because it, maybe because it, it hurts an even larger corporation, uh, the, the oil companies. And but then it's hard to find uh, the, the real puzzle, not the puzzle isn't quite the right word, the real problem here, is that where do you find the support for free markets? If free markets weren't so damn efficient, they could never have survived because they have so many enemies right. and so few friends. The, the business People think of free capitalism or free markets as something that obviously is supported by business. Uh, if, if a business party is a, if a party in politics, it will promote free markets. But that's wrong because it will be in the self-interest of individual businesses to promote a tariff here and a tariff there, to promote the use of ethanol. Special regulations for its competitor that apply just by chance to its competitors but not to itself. That's right. That they already comply with but their comp competitors don't happen to comply with. And it's so hard in general, so much harder to repeal anything, anything government is doing than it is to get it to do it. There are so many stupid things that government is doing that clearly it would be in the self-interest of the public at large to have repeal. Who would, 
who can really, on logical grounds, defend uh, sugar quotas? There's no way of defending sugar quotas. You don't think they're national? It's a, you don't think it's a big national security issue? <laughs> that was why they were imposed. Really? Because of Cuba. Uh, they were initially imposed <laughs> against Castro. Oh, lovely. But once you got them, you couldn't get rid of them. It is a it is a, it's it's a good example because the beneficiaries uh, are are very few. They're very few. We understand that politically, that gives them a certain uh, reason to be loud and talking to their representatives. But you'd think they're, the fewness of them would eventually be decisive in, in overturning it, but it has not. No, it's not, because it's an advantage. If 50% of the people were sugar farmers, you couldn't possibly have sugar quotas. Because too many... Because it costs... would cost too much to... To, to the to other. If you've got 1% of the people are sugar producers, for each dollar that they get, that's divided among 99 people. So sure. it's only one cent to the individual. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it's even more than 99. So uh, it's even us. It's a smaller burden on, on a lot of people. Their incentive to yell is, is small. But, you know, it brings back to a question that, that you write about in Capitalism and Freedom, which is issue by issue... Uh, it's easy to make the case for discretion. When you see the cumulative effect of going issue by issue, you really can make the case for principles. Uh, you gave the example. You give the example in the book of freedom of speech. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of Americans are against freedom of speech. Oh, yeah. um, and if you went issue by issue, you'd find a lot of speech that would be voted down uh, as as not appropriate. And yet, we sustain it through enough people believing that. It, but but even he, even here, with the so-called campaign yeah. laws, we're reducing freedom of speech drastically. It's campaign finance, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a um, incumbency protection. It's back to your your point about businesses wanting uh, government to protect them. In this case, the businesses, the industry of, of government, politicians like the protection that uh, campaign finance laws gives them. Yeah. That's a very tough one when they regulate themselves. They do tend to be a little, um, little self-interested there. It's a little bit, it's very sad. But how do we get that repealed? What politician is going to come up and and make a big fight on repealing the campaign finance, the uh, uh, McCain? Uh, fine gold. Fine yeah. gold. Yeah, it's uh, probably going to be here for a while. Uh, although... Supreme Court occasionally does speak up and, and suggest that this is not really in the consistent with the Constitution. Oh, it's not always the case. Well, the Supreme Court is not a very strong support in some cases. I really Look like at what it did with uh, uh, with uh, property uh, eminent domain. Right. The Kelo case is not really a, a good advertisement for a free market Supreme Court. But ironically, it, it did promote a backlash, produce a backlash uh, at the electoral, at the uh, state and local level against using it, which, so the far in, anyway. The Institute of Justice, which is a remarkably good organization, I agree, has been uh, promoting a backlash against, and they've been doing a very good job. And it may well be that you'll end up with a stronger support for property than you originally had. Yeah. That wasn't the intention of the Supreme Court. No. Let's let's uh, shift gears 
and and talk a little bit about the issue you raised uh, on the difficulty of repealing uh, bad laws. Uh, you mentioned sugar quotas, sugar price supports as an example. What role do you think economic illiteracy, a lack of understanding on the part of the public of the full effects of various legislation, plays in sustaining uh, laws that are described as in the national interest but are really serving special interests? Well, but it's uh, very little because it's not in the self-interest of the recipients to figure it out. What housewife is going to spend the time to save the extra money she, maybe it's 5 or $10 a year she pays extra on sugar. It doesn't pay to try to figure out what the, what the, that is, what you're dealing with is rational ignorance. Right. But if that ignorance were overcome, if Americans... But the rational part is what I want to emphasize. It's not ignorance that is avoidable. Because it's rational to be ignorant. Right. It's, it's, if I'm shopping for a car, I have a natural incentive to find the car that best fits my desires. Right. I don't have much of an incentive to find out the role of uh, a quota in raising the price two or $300. That's why I would argue, uh, maybe you don't agree, I, I would argue that economic literacy, economic education has to be as compelling as possible because it's not particularly useful. Understanding the way the economy works is a little like astronomy. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's, it's pleasant, right? Yeah. You've written eloquently, I think, about economic theory um, having an elegance to it, but not a sufficient elegance to justify <laughs> its study on that basis alone. And, and so it's, it's not terribly useful, uh, other than it's always nice as a civilized human being to understand how the world works. Uh, so that's why I argue we need to make it as entertaining and compelling and and fascinating as we can, because you're right. Rationally, it's other than a few simple useful things that come out of it, it's not as useful as many other things that people would profit spending their time on. And somehow people do get it. It's interesting that there's been so much that minimum wages have become less popular than they used to be. Uh, they've been trying to pass a, ri- a rise in the minimum wage for years, and they haven't passed one. True. And that's because, I think, there is more understanding of the economic merits or demerits of it than there used to be, that more people recognize the effect of a higher minimum wage on the employment of the uh, poor. Well, let me give you a half-empty side to that argument. I make the same argument about price controls. it used to be that when things got expensive in a short period, dramatically more expensive in a short period of time, there'd be a clamor for price controls. Uh, anyone uh, over a certain age has now experienced what happened in the 70s when we put price controls on gasoline, and there was a tremendous backlash against it. There was, uh, in the, right now, we have gasoline at over $3 a gallon. No, no one says we ought to have a price of a dollar. No. So that's the good news. That's I feel we've made some progress. I like to think it's because of economic education, obviously coupled with a great deal of experience. But uh, clearly people understand the impact of price controls and perhaps the minimum wage. On the flip side, though, we have some disturbing empirical evidence, which is true. The federal minimum wage it doesn't get much political interest. 
but the living wage, which are these local ordinances, or like okay. the one in Chicago we spoke about earlier, gets attention and often passes. And, and if anything, you'd think there the effects are even going to be more stark in a local area to, to force prices up because people have more, employers have more choices to, to leave the area, which they wouldn't have at a federal level. Uh, in the case of price controls, true, no one clamors for a dollar a gallon of gasoline legislated by law. We have all these implicit price controls, threats by attorney generals to um, to prosecute gougers in, in the wake of Katrina, or worse, vaccine manufacturers who might have the gall to charge a market-clearing price. Instead, we have the President of the United States begging people to not use the vaccine, and this is two winters ago, begging people not to use the vaccine if they're, if they're not really at risk, instead of using the price mechanism, which is so much more effective. So I worry, I'm not quite sure why that pattern, it seems to be a paradoxical pattern, right? you have any thoughts on that? I don't think there's anything very paradoxical about it. First place, we are now only 20 or 30 years from price control. True. From when we had price control. Yeah. And so a large fraction of the population had, had personal experience with it. 20 or 30 years now, from now, after there's nobody living who had experience with price control, I wouldn't be surprised to see it come back again. Yeah, you might be right. I hope not. In the meanwhile, we'll have a lot better economic education and people understand it so deeply, despite the <laughs> rational incentive not to, that there, maybe there's hope for the future. Um, you mentioned... But look, we have to keep... Uh, keep uh, we have to keep... Uh, ourselves open to the facts. The facts are that the world has become better and better over time. That, that, it's, that the 19th century was better than the 18th century. The 20th century was better than the 19th century. The 21st century is going to be better than the 20th century. In, all, throughout this period, uh, there was once a, uh, an article back in oh, 1780 or something which said how many people lived in free countries and how many lived in the rest of the, in non-free. And the ratio of free people who will live in free countries to the total population of the world has surely been going up throughout this whole, these past two centuries. It went up most dramatically recently when the Berlin Wall fell, yeah. when Soviet Union went out of existence. So that there's reason to be optimistic. Somehow or other, these stupid individuals who vote these bad laws seem to have enough sense to keep from voting laws bad enough to, to create a negative uh, GNP. So I, I, I think in the end, you've got to remain an optimist. Well, I like that. Uh, and I, I share your optimism and I like the long-term perspective, right? Any, on any one day, you can always get depressed about what's going on in Washington or, right. or in City Hall. But the long-term trend is toward more freedom and a higher standard of living. And although it seems very difficult for people to recognize that, they're always moaning. The, the educated class is always moaning about uh, how things have never been worse. We stand on the, on the brink of a precipice either because we have a trade deficit or China or manufacturing jobs are in decline or the inequality of, of due to um, this, that, or the other. Immigration, there's always some threat to our 
to our prosperity that's imminent. And yet, we managed to keep... And yet, no, and note again, another thing. Uh, uh, the glass is half empty. Uh, while everybody complains about Bush's tax cuts, nobody really is in favor of higher taxes. This is true. Well, it might be two or three people. But yeah, <laughs> but there is no group. broad sentiment. No broad move. The Democratic Party doesn't come out with a with a, a higher. They don't come out with a McGovern program. That's true. Uh, yeah, the, the status quo, or, or that's not the right word. Uh, what's considered uh, feasible has changed in mm. the last twenty five years dramatically, uh, and and I obviously, as you mentioned earlier, uh, it's the electorate, the body, the body politic that has that has driven that. Um, I want to ask you about a, about George Stigler, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, the sort of this may be a caricature, or may be totally accurate. One, one might say the caricature of his attitude relative to yours about political economy and political change was that Stigler viewed viewed it as a waste of time to be an advocate. He was an observer of the political scene. He, he was a political economist who, who described why things were the way they were. But the, again, the sort of perhaps caricature, but I think not, I think accurate view of, of George's view of the world was that it was a waste of time to be an advocate, a preacher, a proselytizer for a particular philosophy or ideology because politicians face these incentives and you're not going to change what they do. You're not going to affect those incentives. And therefore, trying to advocate for this policy or that policy or increasing liberty, as, as you have, is is a quixotic endeavor. Is that a fair assessment of his There's view? There's a lot of, lot of truth to it. George always used to say, Milton wants to change the world. I just want to observe it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't true. <laughs> that, is, that was what he would say. But after all, you never heard George say a good thing about bigger government. You never heard him in any way express views that differs from, differed from yours and my views about what we ought to be doing. So I think that was a little bit of a show that he put on. But he didn't spend as much time as you have professionally. No, no, he did spend much more time on observing. And he, you've spent a great deal of time, obviously, on observing, but a sizable amount of time on urging or prodding or Yes. Pushing politicians uh, and others to the rest of us to advocate for smaller government and more individual freedom. Um, I have. Did George, George didn't do that very much. And did he mock you for it? No. He didn't uh, oh, no. view it as a waste of time. No. He never. You know, he might. When you say mock me, he might make a joke about it. <laughs> you know, George was wonderful joke at about jokes. A lot of things. Yeah. He had a, a remarkable sense of humor. And a remarkable ability to make wisecracks. Yes. But, uh, no, he and I were always the best of friends. Yeah, I, I, I used the wrong word there. Tease you might be a better word than mock. Uh, Tease, yes. <laughs> Tease, yes. But not mock. But as a, um, a person who spent a lot of time in the, not just in the academic vineyard, but in the policy vineyard, uh, do you look back on that as fruitful work or as... Um, well, I believe that uh, it's natural in the in the course of a lifetime. I really had two lives. One was as a scientist, as an economist, and one was as a public speaker, public uh, 
public intellectuals, intellectuals. what it's called now. Right, that's what they call it. Uh, and uh, everybody, more or less, does his major scientific work at a relatively early age, beyond the point you're going over, you're, you're repeating it. And it's, it's kind of natural, I think, that people would switch from the one area to the other. So I would say that during, until the 19, uh, really until the 1970s, I did not have much contact in poly, politics whatsoever. I had some, but not much. <clears throat> but then, I think increasingly, as the scientific side of my life matured, and I was led to, I happened to know more people in politics, my interest and my activity switched to some extent. I think what really motivated it more than anything else was when I was the writing of news of columns for mm-hmm. Newsweek, which was fun, I assume. It was fun. It was fine. I think it. <clears throat> I found it a very challenging t- thing to do, and it made me forced me to keep up with the current affairs that were going on, and also it brought me into contact with people who were active in politics. Did did colleagues other than George voice an opinion about you spending your time that way? I know at that point in your life you were already incredibly uh, respected and successful, but no, no. For a young scholar, it's not the best use of, of time. No, I always <laughs> argue again. I always always told my students that if they went to Washington, they shouldn't stay there more than two years, or they'll get ruined. <laughs> <clears throat> and in general. I've argued to scholars, to youngsters who came up to me and wanted to be ideologists, wanted to promote an ideological view, that uh, they first better get themselves established as, a, as an economist or as a scholar and get a good job, and then they could afford to do it. What advice would you give to uh, those who, who love liberty and would like to see its cause uh, thrive? Any... Um You've talked about some optimism that the broad historical trends are good. Anything in the short run that you think would be useful or good for people to be aware of or take advantage of? I think people have to do what they want to do. And I think that the best thing that people can do who want to promote the free market is to talk about the free market, to think about the free market, to write about the free market, and to get get into arguments. (laughs) Uh, something uh, you've uh, spent a lot of time. I've had a lot of experience in a great deal. That's good advice. Thank you, Milton. That's the end of part two of my conversation with Milton Friedman. Please visit econtalk.org to discuss this podcast with other listeners, find links related to this podcast, and find other episodes of Econ Talk, including part one of my conversation with Milton Friedman where we spoke about inflation, the money supply, and the Federal Reserve. This is your host, Russ Roberts. My email address is roberts at gmu.edu. Thanks for listening.